Welcome back. Yay. You haven't seen my face. Oh, no, you have, because we did the baptism. I was going to do that with a mask on. That would have been interesting, snorkel and everything, but that would have been really fun. Um, even though this is a very joyous occasion for us right now, um, I, I do want to just take some time to recognize this past year and not just glance over um, the hardships that it has been or the challenges that it has been for, for some of us. So um, I, I want to recognize that, that some of you have gone through loss, a significant loss for some. Some of you have lost loved ones. Um, jobs, finances, um, community, just being together as a church. So before I go forward and sharing a message from God's Word, I just want to take a brief moment of um, remembrance, silence, lament, um, just to kind of lay down everything we've gone through and over a year this past year right at God's feet and remembering that God is in control. Heavenly Father, thank you for having us gather in your name this morning. We ask for your peace, your comfort, knowing that you are the great provider. And throughout this past year, when things have seemed chaotic and unclear, you were never surprised as you are omniscient, omnipotent omnipresent, omnibenevolent. Lord, as we look at your word today that tells us of the one God, we humbly ask that you speak to us, that we are sensitive to what your Holy Spirit tells us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Um, any of you that are going through a, a challenging time or want prayer, please email us. Uh, we'd, we'd love to pray for you, with you. And I, I know that this time has been really, really challenging for so many. Um, I, I have children and they socially just haven't been the same. So I, I know it's affected a lot, a lot of people. Um, this is our fourth week in Ephesians 4. And the slower pace that we're going through is actually purposeful so, so that we can establish what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, which reads, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, we will quicken the pace starting next week, but we are going to just focus on one verse uh, today. And mainly because we're, we want to look at all the divisiveness that is going on in our world. There's so much division, even among those who identify as Christians. And, and before we address those outside of our church walls, we have to 
take some inventory in regards to the unity within ourselves and how to work on that. So how will we do this? We need to look back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, which reads, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so that one unity of the Spirit is built upon one foundation. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the previous two weeks, we looked at verses 4 and then 5 respectively, and so today we'll look at verse 6. This unity spoken of here is the unity of the Spirit, verse 3, so it's not one, who, it's not one that would be defined in terms of unity in a, a natural sense. The, the natural definition of unity depends heavily on consensus, on agreement, on the majority opinion, on the mainstream feelings. That's not this. The natural type of unity changes. It changes depending on what is popular at that time. That's not the unity that is spoken of here. The unity of the Spirit spoken of here is supernatural. It is not natural. It is found in Christ. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians isn't addressed to everyone. It is addressed to those who are in Christ. That's who his letter is addressed to. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. That's who this letter is addressed to. The letter is written to those who believe in Christ Jesus. And Paul is writing about the one God to these people, to these believers. Verse 6 reads, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Who's that all? Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 tells us Paul wrote to those in Christ, but the word all here appears four times in chapter 4, verse 6. So who is this all? Well, we'll need to take a look at one God and Father along with all because this will give us the context needed to address who all is. One God and Father of all. So is this all referring to everyone? Everybody out there, anybody? Like humanity at large, all. It doesn't seem like that to me. Because as we're going through the context of who this is addressing, if I follow that line of thought, it's all who are in Christ. And not everyone is in Christ. It is only referring to those who are in Christ by grace through faith. All of them. And so if one is not in Christ, that person does not know God as their father and is not part of this all. This is unity of the spirit. It's not based on popular opinion. And the one God and father who has defined who all is, is under this unity of the spirit. And it's not to exclude anyone, but it is to invite. It's an invitation to all to receive 
this call to be a child of God. Now look to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were all separated. We were all separated from Christ at one time. But now, in Christ, we have been brought near. One God and Father of all is speaking to this relationship. And it's not in regards to the universal all. The all is spoken of in creation or in other parts of the Bible, is that universal all. But that universal all is not the same all that is used here. This all is addressing God's family of believers, namely Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Continuing on in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 18, For through him we both, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The unity of the Spirit is found in this one God and Father of all. And Paul is definitely not writing that the one God is the father of all. God is father only to those who are in Christ. Now how do you know someone is in Christ? Well, you can plug them into a verse like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. And is this something they believe by plugging themselves into those verses? Ephesians 1 starting in verse 7 and just plug in yourself. So instead of this plural we, for example, let's read verse 7. In him, I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon me in all wisdom and insight, making known to me the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on, things on earth. And so if that person believes that they are in Christ. And if they just say, I'm a, I'm, I believe in God, but they don't say, no, I don't believe that though. Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 10, I, I can't plug myself into that. That's not a person in Christ. You see how not all know God as their father. They might know God in terms of a little g but not in Christ. Not everyone is in Christ. I have uh, two teenagers now. It's crazy. This past year, I've, I got my second teenager. Please pray for me. But they have questions for me. They have lots of questions. And even more theological ones nowadays. Which is why, you know, I was walking out, Andrew saw me with a stack of books. He was like, oh, you're reading. I was like, no, this is for my daughter. 
because she has all these questions. She's, she's talking to her friends about Jesus, and they have all these questions, and she was like, Dad, I need apologetics. Like, I, I don't know what to say sometimes. So I got all these Lee Strobel books. I got those. I got Mere Christianity from uh, C.S. Lewis, and I, I'm, I'm, they're all in my car now, so that's, that's what she gets to read. But there's still this challenge, like, Dad, what is redemption through his blood? Dude. How am I going to explain this to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old? Like, how, how do you do that? That's why I... I you youth pastors are gold. But it, it, it's challenging for, for them, us too, to, to connect the, the, the present time that we're dealing with right now with redemption through blood. Because we don't do that anymore. So, so we need to go back to the Old Testament. And we go back to the Old Testament and, and I have to paint this picture of what redemption is. It's the redeeming blood, the, the, the sacrifice of a lamb and its blood put on the doorposts and the lintel. And that is what set the people free from the enslavement in Egypt during those plagues. Right? This, this sacrificial blood had, had that pass over them, that death pass over them. And so in, in the New Testament... So I move from Old Testament to New Testament. It, it's the blood of Christ on the cross. Same thing, doorpost, lintel. And that is setting us free from the enslavement to sin, just as this set people free from enslavement in Egypt. That in Christ, by his blood, we have been redeemed from our bondage by God. God set us free. So we're all created by God, and in that sense, we are all his creation. But we were all dead in our trespasses and our sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And not all believe in Christ Jesus to be redeemed. Going back to the Ephesians, they believed in many, 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 many gods. A lot of gods. So it's obvious that as Paul is teaching this, one God and Father, it is not a popular teaching. Just as it's not a popular teaching for us today. Paul wasn't doing anything different than the Old Testament prophets who, who continually reminded the Jews of, of the one true God and the one living God. But it's much like today. Much like today. And this teaching is, is going to be offensive to people around here. You don't believe me? Just go down to the lake and say there is only one true and living God. Only one. And listen to what they say back to you. There's going to be a lot of colorful language, I think. But our culture is just not friendly to this type of message. And our culture is increasingly pantheistic. It is increasingly inclined to worship creation over the creator. At the risk of this offense is our gospel that saves, to bring people in Christ. And the faith that saves you and me is the same faith someone else will need to, to exercise for their redemption. So bringing back that redemption motif once again, 
which is so unfamiliar because we have to go back to the Old Testament, to Jesus Christ in the New, and then to us now. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it reads, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. One God and Father. And so when we think of the word Father, this is one distinctive within the Christian faith. The Christian faith that I know of, and maybe you can give me input, aside from Judaism maybe, is the only one that will address God as Father. It's a Christian thing to address God as Father. Paul addresses this when speaking of our adoption as God's children in his letters to the Romans, the Galatians, to the Ephesians. And Paul is writing literally. He's not using this metaphorical adoption language, but a literal adoption. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I realize that some of us might not have a good picture of a father. And, it, and it's challenging for us not to interpret father with our natural senses because that's who we are. We're natural people. But we need to keep in mind this is our heavenly father who is omnibenevolent, who is all loving. All those negative things you associate with your father, God is not that. God is all Good. All the good things you associate with fathers. And if you are in Christ, in Christ, you belong to God. Now back to verse 6 again. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now that I tried to get the definition of all there in our minds, please keep that in mind. But now we're talking about over all. What is this over speaking of? This is speaking of, of God's place, of God's authority, of God's majesty over all, that God is supreme. Now, too often, people are really, really narcissistic in their thinking. And so when we think of our relationship with God, we, we first think of me, me. Well, there is no me without God. Right? We're not here without God. Our relationship with God begins with God. And not only does it begin with God, but God is who sustains us. And it's all too common for people to get really self-absorbed when, when they think about their relationship with God, when they think about the Bible, when they think about anything church or spiritually related. Even with worship songs. This is really bad in worship songs, right? When you're thinking of me. You hear these worship songs that are just really, really preoccupied with us as individuals more than us, uh, more than their focus on God. And if you just kind of like plug, plug it into like a regular radio station and uh, it just be like a love ballad or something. Like it, it was really like, where's God in this thing? But this is kind of our problem is that we tend to think that the relationship with God has with us is about us. That it's about my happiness. It's about my fulfillment. And um, I'm going to burst your bubble. Because if you think this way, it's not biblical. It's not right. It's, it, it's actually wrong. 
God's relationship with us is about God's glory. And it's not about humanity's fulfillment or happiness or, or well-being. It's about God's grace, God's purpose, God's will, God's glory. And through those things, yeah, it'll, it'll give us those things, but it's not about those things and then we glorify God because he makes me happy. Not the other way around. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, and that all is all, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were at the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and beloved in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All those his things, right? Not us. And you know that the unity of the spirit that, that Paul is writing, you know what that's about now. He, he's just instructing us to be like the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is perfect. It's, it's a bond of perfect love and, and one for us to work to maintain. Not create. God created that. We maintain it. Who is over all and through all. So this through. Now this through is speaking about God's power. It's speaking about God's wisdom. That God is sustaining us through the universe, through himself, independent of anything else. He's not dependent on anything else. He doesn't need anything else. God is providentially working out his will and purpose through all eternity, through all time. And that time is, is coming to a time when the Lord is going to return. And so are we ready for this return of Jesus Christ? Paul wrote letters to the churches to be ready for the return of Christ. Is the church ready for God to work through us. The Ephesians, they, they must have just wondered these questions about themselves, knowing that the culture all around them was so rebellious towards the things of God, that it did not want anything to do with God, that there were these wolves out there who were pulling people away from God, that, that people would fall away due to their own spirituality degrading through their own moral degradation. And Paul knew that the Ephesians struggled, just as so many of us struggle. It's a struggle to live holy, to live righteous. It is a constant struggle. And this is why Paul wrote this letter. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Through, through. It's why John wrote the book of Revelation. That God is over all, he is through it all. It's not a book just for us to kind of speculate the future. That's not what Revelation is. You know, so many people want to read Revelation because they want to know eschatology, what's going to happen in the future. That's not why he wrote it in terms of us speculating the future. What it's for is to help us know that God is indeed over all and through it all. That God is the authority and he is the power over all and through it all. Take a look at Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created." One more in Revelation, Revelation 5, starting in verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with, one, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb the be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Who is over all, through all, as Revelation 4 and 5 have told us, and in all, so in. In is speaking of God's presence and that that God is the foundation to everything all everything is built on God John chapter 17 starting in verse 20 I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me God is in all of what is going on and what will happen to accomplish his will and his purpose. And John recorded for us in John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is really, really interesting. It's a fascinating word. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it is literally speaking about fixing one's tabernacle, uh, a tent or an encampment. And so those 
of you familiar with what John is writing will instantly think of Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Right? And, and it reads this. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So prior to the temple being built, the, when the Israelites were going through the wilderness, they were bringing the tabernacle with them and they would have to erect it every time they went. So this tent of the tabernacle. And so this is speaking of God's presence with them. This is where the tabernacle is created, where the Ark of the Covenant is created, and, and it goes wherever the people go, this symbol of God's presence with his people, and where God identifies himself with his people. And this is the picture of God's presence with his people in the Old Testament. And where Jesus becomes this picture of God's presence with his people in the New Testament. That Jesus becomes this picture of God's presence with us. And this is what John's writing about in the Gospel of John. That Jesus dwelt among us, not like a tabernacle dwelling or tent or encampment or temple. That his presence is in us. John chapter 14, starting in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as an orphan. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the presence of God in us. God who is over all. God who is through all, working in all. And God who is in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that it penetrates deep inside of us to know who you are, the one true and living God who is over all, working through all, and in all. In Jesus' name. Um, as you guys came in, there were some communion elements out there. If you did not get them, just hold up your hand and our ushers will walk them forward to you and we'll prepare ourselves for communion. so nice to be able to take this together and not through a screen. So this is great. Whenever you get your communion elements, let's first take out that cracker, symbolizing the body of Christ, Christ's body broken for us. And that symbolism of Christ's presence with us I, I love this sacrament as this constant reminder, God with us, that he's over, he's through, he's in. 
And so as we are preparing our hearts, our spirits, our minds to take communion together, just ask that if you are harboring a bitterness, a resentment towards someone else, that you would refrain from taking communion, that you would posture yourself in that direction to make peace, to extend love to someone before taking communion. So when you're ready, let's, let's take this together. The fruit of the vine. And as we talked about that redemption by blood in the Old Testament, that picture of the Passover lamb put on the doorposts and the lentil, the blood of the lamb put on there so that it would, that spirit would pass over with that judgment over that family. And then how that picture extends over to the New Testament with Jesus and Jesus' blood on the cross. So that eternal death passes over us that we are born again, that we have a life everlasting. And we remember Christ's sacrifice for us in that. Let's take this together. Lord, thank you for these symbols of your love, of this reconciliation that you've extended to us, this peace that you've extended to us. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize who you are, that we would keep true to your word. Thank you for dying for us and extending that redemption through blood to us. In Jesus' name, amen.